Welcome to Linked Up, Breaking Boundaries in Education, a podcast that focuses on what is happening in education today, connecting everyone to the movers and shakers that are breaking boundaries in the education arena. Welcome to this episode of Linked Up, Breaking Boundaries. Jerry, throughout our wonderful, amazing experience of having this podcast, we have gone on a journey uh, learning about how to be anti-racist. And we, we try to ask hard questions. We try to get great people to teach us. And we are continuing that journey today. I'm very excited about this today. I'm excited too. But the one thing I want to say about this journey is it is tough. Oh, in all of my 38 years in education, the equity and DEI journey was the toughest work I was ever involved in. And so my hat goes off to people that keep it front and center every day. And we try to keep it front and center in front of our audience by talking about it frequently because it's important that we do. But today we have two special guests that, you know, I had a lot of FOMO recently in December. Classlink sponsored a great event. Um, a, it was a diversity, equity, and inclusion event in Washington, D.C., and Gregory Hutchins was one of the speakers. After the event, I heard over and over again what an amazing event it was, but in the same sentence, everyone said, and Dr. Hutchings was out of this world. And so I've had FOMO all this time, and now it's April, and I'm finally able to meet Dr. Hutchings. And with him today is Douglas Reed. And I believe the two of them have been collaborating, and we are here to find out what you've been working on and learn more on our journey. So welcome, Greg and Doug. We are happy to have you here today. Thank you. It's great to be here. And Jerry, I need you in my life every morning. <laughs> you need what? I said, I need you in my life every morning. <laughs> well, that would be great. <laughs> yes. Well, we need you in our lives keeping this topic in front of everyone because it's That's so great. important. So let's start off with, you know, when you talk about racism, I, I believe people are racist, but they don't always know they're being racist, right? It's some right. of the beliefs and things that we grew up with. We, we're not even aware of it sometimes. But you talk a lot about anti-racism. And you said that I read that you said you have to be really intentional about being anti-racist. What do you mean by all of that? Yeah, well, well, first off, let me just say, Doug and I, we have, we've had these conversations a lot, and we still do. <laughs> this is one of the reasons why we wrote the book, um, because, you know, some people, they just, they don't realize that, you know, they're, they're being racist at times. Some, they're, you know, I think that racism is kind of like, it's, it's in our blood, it's in our foundation as a country, and this is why it's so important for us to know our history, too, right? Um, but, but one thing I, I just want to start off by saying is that no one has the right to be comfortable. Um, and I like to start off by saying that because a lot of times we think we have a right to be comfortable and we really don't. Um, and when we're on this anti-racist journey, as, as you just mentioned early, earlier, Jerry, that this is an intentional effort, right? This is something you have to be intentional about. You also have to be intentional about leaning into your discomfort. That is how we grow most. You know, we grow the best when we're like, in a situation that is not our comfort zone, we learn more about ourselves, we learn more about others. And that is what this whole anti-racist um, journey is, is it's all about. It's all about leaning into our, our discomfort. But I wanted to just start off with that before we got into your question uh, in regards to like, like how, how do you do that? Um, or how do you have those discussions? And, and Doug, you may wanna start off with that uh, just because I know that that was a really important component that we were discussing when we were writing this book. Um, and it was interesting because Doug is speaking from a white perspective, and then I get to speak from a Black and African-American perspective quite often. So Doug and I, we have known each other now for four years, um, which is crazy. 2018 was when we first met. Doug, you better know the date. 
I don't know the date, but I know the year. <laughs> Sometime in August, I think. Sometime in August. <laughs> so let me tell you what's crazy. When I first came to Alexandria as a superintendent in July of 2018, prior to my arrival, I was developing um, my transition team. And I happened to read Doug's book, um, Building the Federal Schoolhouse. And it's a story which he can talk about, about the Alexandria City Public School System. And I was so fascinated by his book that I reached out to him to say, hey, I'm, I'm about to be the superintendent of Alexandria and I'm from Alexandria. And I've read about things I have never heard about and I'm a native Alexandrian. Wow. Like, where did you get all this data from? And Doug was like, this is the history and you should know this. And um, so I said, well, would you be on my transition team? Because, you know, I'm coming into this city and you now have a perspective about our school system that I don't even have. And I think that's like so important for our community to have some historical context as we tackle whatever our new challenges are going to be. And that's kind of like how we initially met. <laughs> Kudos to you, Greg, for acknowledging that. Yeah, some leaders don't even want to acknowledge that someone else might know more about the community. So kudos to you. One of the things that I found really gratifying about this, this relationship here. So I wrote this earlier book uh, that really goes into a long history. You know, it's, it's, it's an academic book. It's not for a general audience. Greg slogged his way through it. It tells a 50 year story about the politics in Alexandria. I, I'm a political scientist by training. I study politics of education and there's a racial story in Alexandria that is, is really important. And it's a civil rights story. Um, and so Telling that story about um, the transition from Jim Crow schooling through the 1960s and 70s and on into the 80s and really the continuities, the, the, the ways in which things did change, but the ways in which things didn't change are really important. Right? And so Greg um, and others in Alexandria, you know, read the book. And so we started having conversations and those conversations became um, really, I mean, it really pivoted when COVID hit. We started having um, more almost weekly conversations about what's going on, what were the circumstances, what is Greg dealing with? Um, and we said, there's a real need here to start talking about things you have to do explicitly. Uh, and then um, uh, after the, the uprisings in late May of 2020 and, and, and into that, over that summer, we really said, you know, race um, and racism uh, and anti-racist work really became front and center on the national agenda. Um, and it's, it's, still, it's still there. Um, it's not as in the streets as it was then, um, but our conversations really became centered around what do we need to do in schools to shift the conversation from being, um, uh, you know, from, from saying, what do, we, what do kids need in order to get by to, what do we need to do to shift the frame on racial equity um, and put that front and center to what um, uh, uh, schools need to do? And Greg's been doing that work in Alexandria. I have a sort of an academic training and academic background in, in the research and, and talking about what it is that the research shows about what's necessary. Uh, and so we brought those together, both the practical and the research in a way to kind of become a guidebook for uh, school administrators, teachers, activists who want to put anti-racist work at the center uh, of, of what they do. It's a great thorough pro partnership. I think that's fantastic. And what is the title? What's the title of the book? That's what I was going to ask. The title is Getting, in, Getting Into Good Trouble at School. Why? What does that mean? I love that. Well, think about John Lewis. I mean, John Lewis is all about, he's saying, you got to get into trouble, get into good trouble. And um, when we started having this conversation, that was the time that the late, you know, John Lewis had passed away. And we were talking about just, you know, we need to be getting in good trouble at school too, right? Mm -hmm. And, and um, we, we were talking about how the, the conversation is consistently around diversity, equity, and, and inclusion. Um, but we wanted to take it a step further and say, well, let's talk about anti-racism. Let's talk about not only anti-racism, but anti-racism in schools and in school systems because there really isn't a lot of information out there around how do you build an anti-racist um, school system. We, even when we were doing a lot of our research, there, there wasn't a lot of material that was specifically around anti-racism in school systems, like how do you build that? Um, and we wanted to make sure we had you know, this, this guidebook, but John Lewis really, the honorable John Lewis, late John Lewis, he, he, that is who inspired us in regards to uh, getting into good trouble at school. 
And that's all about being uncomfortable and starting to change some policies. Um, I hear these things coming up. One of the central points of the book um, is really making a kind of a distinction between individuals and individual behaviors and thinking about institutions and structures. Right. Um, so your comment at the beginning at the top of the show was um, people people may be racist, but they may not know that they're being racist. Well, right. individuals can be not racist, but be working within institutions that perpetuate racist outcomes. So right. separating out the individual from the context from the individual is a really important sort of um, conceptual piece about, OK, what do I need to do in order to undo what institutions are perpetuating and what practices that may even on their surface not seem to be about race really have deep, profound racial consequences. And so that's why you can't just sort of um, simply be about diversity, equity, and inclusion. You've got to be anti-racist to undo what those institutions are perpetuating. Um, and you and can so get into good trouble doing that. Exactly. And you can get right. complacent in order to be able to do that. I'm so getting this now. Good trouble right. is necessary right. to undo what institutions want to do because uh -huh. that's how um, uh, they're set up. And, and, and so it's, it's about understanding the difference between that individualist approach and that uh, a broader institutional structural approach. And part of the problem is that teachers grew up in this system so they, they've been immersed in it for so many years. All educators have. We grew up in it and now we're working in it. How do we begin to recognize some of those things that really do have cultural bias to them? Um, I'm thinking things such as even testing and IQ and all of that. Uh, how do we begin to question those and recognize those? Or what are some other examples maybe? And that's some of the reasons why in the book we talk about knowing the history, right? Um, because even when we're talking about testing or we're talking about special education or talented and gifted programs, um, all of these things that we have in our educational systems, there is a, a, a history behind that. And a lot of the, um, the history behind it relates to race. You know, you think of uh, when special education programs and talented and gifted programs really soared in the late 60s and early 70s, a lot of that was because that was a time we were integrating schools, right? So we were finding other ways to do some form of de facto segregation. Um, and we began to use assessments to determine or to use as a guideline to determine who goes to this all white school or who goes to an all black school. Um, and these were some tactics and strategies and practices that were put in place intentionally um, to divide uh, students um, and to, to oppress you know, a particular um, a race, which is the black race initially, um, is, is who, was, who was being oppressed by this. But this is why you know, it's so important for us to, you know, to teach our true history um, within our schools as well as just amongst each other. And you gotta figure some of this out on your own too, because you know, as Doug was saying, you gotta have both, not only like your own individual kind of experience and learning who you are as a person and what you think and some of your racial tendencies, because we all have them. Um, we all have racist behaviors and thoughts and um, biases. Uh, but not only do you have to do your individual uh, piece, but you have to look at the organization um, or the city or the school system or the state uh, as, as a whole, because those are factors that will help you to, uh, to better solve the solutions for tomorrow. Absolutely. So your book is, um, I love that it's based on the research and, and kind of telling school districts, it's a playbook of how to be anti-racist. So it's so important because school leaders, school educators don't always have time to look at all of that research. So what would you say are some of the big takeaways to get started? What, what can I, educators I, I, do? The first one, uh, the, the, the first one I think uh, Greg touched on is, is knowing your history and, and, and listening to stories that haven't been told, right? Um, so there's a, a conventional history of any school district. There's a conventional story of who the school district is for and, and uh, who succeeds within the school district. But we also are other stories that haven't been told, um, stories that connect to the past practices. 
um, but also talk about stories of, of resilience um, and excellence, uh, even when institutions don't want that to happen. So listening to the stories of all the constituents within, within a particular place and, and understanding that, and then seeing how those connect to current practices. Um, and so that's a, the, the first step is kind of opening up that, that um, your imagination or, or sort of understanding the way in which the past has shaped the present. That's, that's I think, the, the first step to uh, uh, um, uh, making, this, making this commitment down this journey of, of anti-racist work. We need to we need to know um, past practices so that we can do better and learn from those. And, and also not just to do better to make that commitment, but to understand um, this is something we need to change because uh, it was put into place for a particular reason. And even though that reason may have gone away or or is no longer permissible, some of those effects are still um, being deployed, even without the intentions or desires of the folks within the system. That's what's really important. Right. We tend to keep doing. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's unintentional. What I was going to say it's unintentional. And those, that's when you talk about systemic racism in our educational institutions across America, um, because they have been built on these practices, you know, or these pillars uh, that were during a time of segregation in a lot of cases. I mean, we even had laws that were developed. I mean, you got to think of them. We talk about the Declaration of Independence and all these things. People were Black people were slaves when these things were written, right? So those are conversations that we need to begin to have as well. Um, like, could somebody at that time even fathom a Black person or any BIPOC um, you know, person of being a human being and having a seat at the table, right? Because that wasn't the norm uh, at that particular time when these, when these laws and, and policies were written. So um, it, it's important for us to know that history so that we can have some historical context and begin to work through, like, what are some of those um, solutions that we're going to need to you know, put in place uh, to, to change this narrative moving forward. Yeah, I guess it's about looking at root cause, right? So, so look, mm -hmm. that lends into history to identify the root cause so that we can learn why and get off that continued systemic path into better, more productive. Exactly right. And, and that, that leads to the second step, which is really making a commitment um, uh, to placing racial equity at the center of, of what you do. And we define that as, as being integral to academic excellence, right? So this is centering racial equity and equity throughout a school system is necessary for any school system to be an excellent school system. So it's not that we're making allowances or we're um, um, uh, bending over backwards, but we're really committing to the education of all our students in an equitable fashion because that's what it means to be an excellent school system. Uh, and without that, we're not being excellent. Um, there may be some kids who go on to Ivy Leagues or whatever, but um, without that broad-minded commitment to equity, we are um, imperiling the futures of, of what is now a majority of students within the United States, right? right. Students of color make up a majority of all public school students in the United States. So if we don't attend to the needs of all of those students, we are imperiling our future as a nation. Um, and so understanding that and understanding the ways in which schools um, um, create um, obstacles for student success um, rather than facilitating it is essential to making that commitment to equity. And you've got to understand the urgency of that. And that's something that in our conversations that I have with Greg, we, I mean, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a liberal academic professor. I thought, oh yeah, this is good. But really understanding the urgency of this in the now and in the present is, is, is an important piece of, 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 of making that commitment as well. I want to share a great example that my school district came up with. It was an aha moment for me because I think it really illustrates all the points that you're making here. We looked at our choir, our honor choir at the high school, and we said, oh, my goodness, they're all well, no, it was the orchestra. They're all white predominantly. Why is this? 
So we went into root cause. Oh, in order to play this instrument, you had to have piano lessons. In order to play that one, you have to rent this. So now you had to have privilege in order to be able to do these things. So we started to deconstruct those and make sure that every student was able to get into this. And one of the questions we would ask ourselves is, what's race have to do with this? And it really made the people at the table start to think about that. Um, but I will say it was very difficult because the music teachers continued to say, no, they can't be a part of this without having those private lessons. And so you come up against a lot of brick walls yeah, when you resistance. do this work. Yeah. And I think that's why it, it is so important for us to push people out of their comfort zones. Right. Yes. And, um, you know, we always talk about the difference between equity and equality. So equality is giving everybody access, right? So you and um, your community giving the students the access, okay, that, that's an equality piece. But then the Absolutely. equity piece com comes in by saying, in addition to giving you equal access, we're going to provide you with whatever support you need so that you can be successful. And your supports might be different from the other. So for example, um, what I would, if I was consulting with your school division, I would talk with them around what are some opportunities to provide additional lessons for kids who can't afford them, right? At an earlier age, at, at the elementary school, right? How can we start getting students who can't afford to do piano lessons, piano lessons, right? How can we begin to make sure that students who may not be able to purchase, you know, the uniform or have the transportation to get there? How do we now have after school busing for them? How do we also make sure that there's not a fee any longer to have your uniform? Um, all of these things will then bring equitable practices um, in, into place. So a lot of times people stop at the equal access component. They say, okay, you know what? We've opened the door for you. We let you in, come on in. But there, everybody's coming with certain deficits. So we have to meet folks where they are, not necessarily where we want them to be. And that's what you know, racial equity and equity in general is all about. Absolutely. And like you said before, it's uncomfortable for a lot of the adults at the table. I, I think one of the things that, I, so in, in, in my own classes I teach at Georgetown, mm -hmm. we talk a, a lot about um, racial literacy uh, and racial fluency. Um, and knowing your history is part of that racial literacy, understanding the experiences of, of, of students of color um, and also just the nation's history um, and, and how race figures into that. That's, that's an integral part of being a U.S. Uh, a resident in the United States is understanding our, our racial history and racial past. But racial fluency is developing the ability to have constructive conversations about race um, in a way that's not defensive, in a way that acknowledges race and sort of says, okay, this is, this is part of uh, the world in which we live. So we want to uh, make this world a better place. So we need to understand um, how to engage questions of race and challenges of race. That's part of racial fluency. And we need that skill set across uh, our institutions and across our, our citizenry. Um, I because, think that's, that's what's lacking so much. Yes. And, and you know, um, people uh, oftentimes when you say it's uncomfortable, I think it is for the first you know, I myself, you know, in teaching, I, I, my, my own backgrounds in constitutional law and teaching civil rights of Bolivia, first time I was like, what do I know? I'm a white guy. How can I teach about right. this? But at a certain point, once you develop a knowledge base um, and you've done it a couple of times, you sort of become uh, more comfortable uh, and you, you, you recognize the ways in which other people understand you uh, and the ways in which you've misunderstood other people. And it's, I think it's a, it's a skill that can be developed. Race is not just a status, it's a skill. Um, and so we need to be able to develop that skill of communication and, and competency. I suspect that you have some ways to help districts do that in your book. Yes, we do. We do. Um, and, and one thing that the way we framed our book is to make sure that we have uh, guiding questions at the beginning of each of each chapter to kind of let you understand kind of these should be some of the questions that you're trying to get answered as you're reading this this particular chapter and this material. And then at the end of every chapter, we have reflections, um, which are actionable. So it allows you to reflect as well as um, to have some actionable steps. And we provide um, in, in our final chapter actual resources for you to get this work done. And these are resources that are from all over um, the country. 
um, that you that can help you as an organization to really move to move this work. And then we're always available for consulting. So we will be able to come into school systems. You know, our, our job is to come into school systems and to not stay there forever. It's to build capacity for school systems so that you make it sustainable. Um, because this work is ongoing. It's, it's not a one and done uh, deal. We can't come in and do, you know, 10 training sessions for you. And then the whole, your whole school system is like, the problem is solved, right? This is something that you're going to have to, as any organization or school system do continuously, even when we're no longer, uh, no longer there. You know, one of the uh, points and guidance that you provide in your book, I know, is um, alternatives to some of the common disciplinary uh, practices that um, are in place that continue to um, foster um, racism. So what are a couple of those suggestions to help kind of break that? Some of the, well, some of the things that the research shows uh, that are not productive really are, are high rates of suspension, both in school and out of school suspension. So um, taking schooling away from students doesn't contribute to their schooling, you know, um, and, and thinking and, and conceiving, conceiving of a disciplinary um, uh, practice as, as a formative practice, not a punitive practice, right? Mm -hmm. So kids are kids, right? They are learning um, and thinking about how your disciplinary structure um, is about community membership within the school and the responsibilities that members have to that community and the ways in which transgressions of those responsibilities leads to a breach of trust. Um, and then having students um, contribute to that definition of what those rules are um, is a really powerful piece of the ownership uh, about um, this is this is what it means for us to be a community, and this is how we, as as a student body and as as a community, um, uh, want to uh, engage, you know, uh, constructive behaviors. Um, and so, there's a bunch of those restorative practices. Is one set. There's another set of of, of, of techniques that are used um, in in a variety of schools. And it, so, it's not. There's not. We don't have one silver bullet to sort of say, okay, this is what you have to do. But it's really about conceiving of it as as less of a punitive practice and more as a formative practice, an educational practice um, that connects to the outcomes that we want students to have. Right. Thinking about what what is the goals of student behavior um, and how do we get students to kind of almost engage. In that self-regulation um, uh, rather than sort of punishing transgressions uh, and, and figuring out and mapping out that pathway towards a goal-oriented design focus on, on disciplinary processes, it's really important. Yeah, and one thing I was going to add to that, Doug, was just the fact that, um, you know, our overarching kind of like theme to this when you're tackling uh, the disciplinary practices that mirror policing in a lot of school systems <laughs> Um, is SEAL, which stands for social, emotional, and academic learning, right? Kids don't wake up and say, I'm going to go to school and do something bad, or I'm going to go to school and get into trouble today. Well, unless you get into good trouble, of course. <laughs> um, but, but, what, but what students are dealing with a lot of times are social issues, emotional issues, and even sometimes academic issues that lead to certain behaviors that manifest in classrooms and in school buildings. So, you know, our overarching really response to this is social, emotional, and academic learning. Uh, and that's how restorative practices comes in into this uh, picture. That's how, you know, it's important to have social workers and psychologists and counseling sessions or community circles um, at the beginning of class to get to know your kids and build relationships. Um, and it's all about restoration. You know, I think we've gotten into this whole mindset that when somebody does something wrong, they need to be excluded permanently. Right. And, and that's not really a good practice. We, we know it leads to just more destruction later and self-esteem issues for some of the students as well, because they're now being um, taken out of their kind of socialization um, with their peers. So, uh, you know, we're trying to really push people to think beyond that policing mentality and be more of a let's build community. Um, let's work with that student's individual needs uh, versus, you know, pushing them out. 
and one of the, one of the things that the research shows, and Greg knows this intuitively from his own his own practice, his own work, is that relationships between teachers and students are are key to all of this. And I, this is where an, an, an instance where um, being frank about race is really important, right? Um, uh, relationships across racial divides can be can be challenging in the U.S., where we we have uh, a lot of segregation in housing markets. We have a lot of segregation in schooling. Um, and thinking about okay, what's the relationship between a predominantly white teaching force and an increasingly uh, um, a student population that's of color? Um, and understanding that well, um, sometimes a, a, a black teacher and a black student may have some common frames of reference about what behavior is appropriate. Um, but then also thinking about the growth of, of teachers as in their skill set um, and in classroom management and connecting and understanding to uh, uh, the cultural background and context of, of students of color. Um, you know, I'm a white guy. I can't change this color of my skin. But what I can do is learn and understand and uh, try to appreciate the frame uh, and context of a student. Right. Um, and and begin to make some of those connections in an honest way. That kind of work can be can be um, challenging, but it's really integral when you think, oh, my God, this this student is is challenging my authority in the classroom. What's your immediate response? Well, a good teacher is going to step back, is going to look at the whole picture and, and not maybe make a referral to the principal down the office, because a lot of disciplinary um, uh, processes start when teachers are unable to manage the classroom. And so they just sort of you know, kick it down the hallway to the principal, but figuring out what those relationships are that are necessary to maintain um, uh, uh, that that rapport is is an important part of that uh, process. And it goes back to not being compliant. I mean, not being complacent. Right? It really does force all of us to sit back, not react but instead respond. And in order to properly respond, we need to have that full context. And in order to do that, we need to build those relationships, like you said. I mean, it really does come down. And Jerry and I kind of laughed when you said that. I feel like 95% of all of our podcasts have a theme of the importance of building relationships in all aspects of education. We, it's, and it, has become so much more evident, I think, through the pandemic as well. I think I agree. we really, really and we that. and we need to make sure that we stay true to that um, that building of relationships piece and building relationships with people who are not like you. That's very difficult, right, for folks. Yes. Um, and uh, I mean, for me, I'm in the business of education, so I deal with all types of people, right? So, and I had to love that or I wouldn't be a good educator, right? And I'd say that about all educators. If you don't love learning about new cultures and new people, education is not the field for you um, because that is what this is all about. Um, it's about getting to learn new people and to embrace them. Um, I did want to talk about our, our next step because there's six steps. And I think it's important for uh, folks that are listening um, to this podcast to understand each of them. Um, but, you know, we, we, we talked about knowing your history, uh, which is key. And um, we talked about having a commitment to racial equity. Uh, we also talked about making sure that your discipline is not mirroring policing um, and not having just a focus on getting kids out of school, whether it's suspension or expulsion. Um, next, I want us to, to really just touch on the importance, and we touched on this a little bit earlier, of dismantling some of the um, systemic racism or de facto segregation practices that happen in schools. Um, and some of these practices are things like pull-out services for talented and gifted, right? Or magnet programs, or specific guidelines to get into an honors course or an AP course. And these are practices that we've all uh, in the K-12 sector have accepted as normal, right? We, we think that's okay, right? Uh, we, we believe that kids should be taken out or segregated from other um, students and put into their own environment with like minds. Uh, and that is a, I, I believe that is a philosophy that we really need to work through and unpack uh, because that philosophy comes from uh, a time when we were trying to integrate our schools and let's try to find things that make kids different so we can segregate them again. 
And we're still doing it, you know, today. Uh, and I think it is going to be important for school systems or organizations um, that are trying to, you know, really become an anti-racist um, organization to hit that nail on the head um, and to, to do it spot on and be unapologetic about it. Uh, I think this is probably one of the hardest nuts to crack. And the reason why I say that is because there's such tradition that goes along with talented and gifted programs. And, oh, you're going to now dummy down the curriculum for my child who's gifted. And, you know, but every parent knows that their children are gifted, right? Who's to say that because your child has a certain score on the test that they're smarter than, than, than my child? We have, we have certain kids who they never have had any piano lessons and they can play Mozart or whoever, right? Like, so, you know, I think it's so important for, for us to understand that all people bring gifts um, and have certain gifts. Uh, so who, who are we to say, but this one gets X, right? And this one gets Y. Um, but I, I wanted to touch on that. And Doug, you may want to elaborate a little bit because I want us to really get through um, each of our steps because I, I, we really do believe that if, if you go through all six steps, that is how you get to an anti-racist um, school system. I just want to uh, emphasize what Greg said. I mean, tracking, tracking recreates segregation in, by classroom rather than by school. Um, and if you look at the distribution of students in AP courses in high school, uh, it's 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 racially um, inflected and constructed. Um, and it, it it is hard to undo it. It's not impossible. Um, but a lot of the decisions happen in fourth and fifth grade, especially around math and math coursework uh, pathways. Um, and so you can think about uh, uh, changing those pathways or minimizing the number of pathways. Um, uh, and and so, but there there are concrete steps you can take to minimize or reduce or detract uh, your your school system. Uh, but I, I think I think it's a, it's a, it's an imperative piece to ensure that everyone has full exposure and full opportunity to explore the entire curriculum, not just one segment of the curriculum. Um, you've got to have uh, a full access to the curriculum to really be uh, an equitable school system. So, um, but the, the next piece uh, I think is really important, which is the strategic uh, thinking and strategic planning. So I'll, I'll let Greg continue on with that one because that's that's in his in yeah. his wheelhouse here. And and that and that's a component component. I mean that's a component piece. Um, the strategic thinking and strategic planning uh, piece, because right now, just think of this whole critical race theory debate that we're all in, right? That has just been like put into schools, which I'm trying to understand how did pre-K through 12, um, you know, the pre-K through 12 sector get sucked into this? Like, I, I don't get it. We just learned about the critical race theory when it became this politicized word that everybody's now attaching to education. When we talk about CRT, like when educators talk about CRT, we're talking about culturally relevant teaching. That's what that means for us. We didn't use critical race theory. We don't even know what that is, right? And many of us, that's not our specialty. We weren't trained, I, and I've, I have a doctorate, right? I've never discussed critical race theory in any one of my, um, any one of my studies. It happened. <laughs> I don't understand because it's so funny you said that because we, we have um, a guest who we just had on the podcast again, um, Yuritsa, and she has a, um, um, a whole kind of podcast where she answers questions about uh, culturally relevant teaching, culturally responsive teaching, CRT. And so we always refer to it as CRT. And then all of a sudden, CRT became this dirty word and we didn't understand it. We were trying to unpack it. And we thought, where did this come from? Now all of the schools are adopting it, but is that a bad thing? What does it mean? Why is, why is everyone so up in arms? So what you're trying to say is that it really hasn't been something that schools are saying, yes, we're doing. I mean, it sounds like if we were, it would take years for teachers to be trained. So I don't. Yeah, it would. And we don't. And that's the thing. I always tell people, they always ask the question, well, Dr. Hutchings, what are you all doing in Alexandria in regards to critical race theory? And I'm like, nothing. So we move on to the next question, <laughs> right? Because nothing, right? That has nothing new. Now, what we are doing is we're teaching our students our American history, right? We are having discussions, you know, with our students uh, around 
what are some of the um, the issues that we're that we're tackling with and the racial reckoning that America has embarked on? You know, like those are conversations that we have uh, within school, but that's not the critical race theory, right? Uh, and I think what people have done is they've taken diversity, equity, inclusion, anti-racism, they put it all into this whole jar of critical race theory, okay. which is inaccurate. Um, it, that's that, that's it's, it's inaccurate, but this is why strategic thinking and strategic planning is so important, right? If, if we get sucked into this kind of critical race theory debate as educators, then we're missing our opportunities to get the real work done that has something to do with our kids and their achievement. And uh, there are a lot of times that there are distractors that are out there. Many of the distractions are, they're purposeful. Like they, they were done on purpose. Like people have said, let's go distract, let's ruffle feathers, let's parade school board meetings, let's send, you know, letters and emails and do op-eds and petitions to stop people from doing trouble. the real work. That's right, get into bad trouble. Um, to stop school systems from doing their work. Uh, and that is what's happening. So we got to be strategic in regards to our thinking um, around that, as well as our planning, because with this whole planning piece, if you are in any organization without a strategic plan, that means you have no roadmap to success. So you're pretty much doing any and everything that comes your way. That means you're doing like a hodgepodge of things. There really is no intentional efforts or focus um, that you have uh, for your organization. So you've got to have that roadmap. Um, and you have to also know you got to be able to pivot. We're all in a situation right now where this pandemic that hit us two years ago was not something that was on anybody's radar. Like who would have ever thought that we would be in times like this? Um, but, you know, even in Alexandria City Public Schools, we have been able to stay true to our to our mission, our vision, our core values, which is a part of our strategic plan and, and striving to attain our goals. But we did have to pivot to bring in some of these COVID practices, health and safety mitigations and contact tracing and virtual learning, right? But we still stay true to what we were supposed, supposed to do. And that is what really good strategic plans allow you to do. They allow you to make modifications when needed, um, but still keeping your eye on the prize, which should be our young people when you're dealing with the school system. Yeah. I, I mean, it sounds to me that you're you know, the, the six steps that you're referencing in your book, um, the goals, what we need to succeed um, is based on what you said in the beginning. It's about commitment, but it's about commitment to keep the focus, the students, right? It's all right. about students. And that's where if we keep that focus, um, hopefully that commitment will be um, authentic and sustainable. Um, but this book, what I think is going to be so appealing to people, and it's been out for a month now, or was it just? Well, it comes out next month, actually. <laughs> it's oh, going to be, oh, yeah, cool. be released next month. <laughs> okay, great, which is when we'll be live. This will be live then. So that's perfect timing. Yeah, which is crazy. Because um, everybody's I, calling us as if it is already complete. <laughs> like we're getting calls and, you know, speaking engagements. And the book is not even, you know, released until next month. But that means it's timely. It's needed because people want it. They're hungry for it. Yes. And that's the key is that it's a guidebook, right? It's not just a read and put it away and get dusty. But it sounds like something that's going to be on the desk of board members and administrators and teachers so that they can use it continually. Yeah. We want we want folks to highlight it, mark it, you know, mm -hmm. um, uh, fold over pages, put post-its in it. It is it is really a, a, a book you engage in a very visceral way to sort of figure out, okay, what's your plan? Um, and, and how are these steps going to inform your practice? Um, so it's it's very much a, a hands-on uh, how-to kind of guide. And it's so needed. It is so needed. As we, as we begin to wrap up the podcast, we have a question that we like to ask our guests each time. And so I, I just wanted to start with Doug and say, through all the research that you've done and all the knowledge that you have on this topic, what has become clear to you? Um, what's become clear to me is that ignoring race doesn't work. Um, engaging race is essential. 
Um, and, and, and I say that from a white perspective. Uh, I think often um, white folks have, have the, the luxury uh, of, of ignoring it, um, but that is over the long haul going to lead to um, a, a, a worsening of our educational situation and, and predicament. And so we've really had to uh, uh, step up and engage um, in, a, in a vigorous and, and honest way uh, and develop new skills. Um, and that's where the discomfort comes from. But I think that that is an essential part. And we should we should feel good about in developing those new skills. Uh, and I think it's a, it's, a, it's a learning process, but it's a constructive and productive process. Excellent. So that's, that's from the research standpoint. So Greg, from the practicing standpoint, being a superintendent and practicing and creating these plans and working with people day in and day out, what has become clear to you? What has become clear to me, I think is kind of like step six because <laughs> we didn't get through sec six. And that is, you got to have courage and you got to be bold. Yes. It has come clear to me in order to do this work, you have to be courageous. You have to be bold. You have to be unapologetic about this work because there are generations to come that are depending on us to do something about this narrative um, right now. And it is, it's, it's definitely going to take courage and it's going to take the boldness. And it can't just be, you know, people who are Black, Indigenous, and people of color. We need everybody coming to the table and saying, not in our America, right? We will no longer tolerate this type of treatment to other people or these, um, these structures that have been intentionally put in place to oppress a certain race um, in the United States of America. Uh, but it takes courage and it takes boldness to do that. I mean, we're trying to dismantle things that are from our founding fathers, right? right? Which is which is huge. It's a big deal, um, and it's scary. You got you have the courage and you have the boldness to make it happen. I guarantee we will make this world a better place. Absolutely, and you're both really saying the same thing. We have to address it. We have to stand up, we have to talk about it, and we have to keep it front and center. How, how can we keep it front and center as we finish up here today? How can we ensure that our educators keep it top of mind and continue the, the work? Part of, part of it, I think, is recognizing that, well, I mean, schools are systems, right? And, and, and part of the indicators that we need to pay attention to, they need to involve, um, you know, that data about race. And we need to sort of keep people's uh, attention on those and pay attention to that in a, in a, uh, in a, in a direct and, and, and clear way. And then develop, as, as Greg said, um, strategic thinking and strategic planning to address it and having this uh, um, uh, woven into a cycle of, of improvement, um, because unless unless it's in that uh, a set of incentives that folks have, um, I worry that it does drop off the agenda. It can't be just something. Oh, uh, it is the passion of the moment. It's got to be um, uh, built into uh, our way of doing business. Yeah, and we have to do what we're doing right now. We have to keep talking about it, right? If if we if we don't keep this. Um, as a priority topic, then it is going to fade away. And then 20 years from now, it'll come back again, right? So it's kind of like if you, if you have that cough and you never go to the doctor to figure out like what's going on and then you go back into something serious a year or so later, right? But you could have solved it earlier. These are all the whispers. Um, I'm using Oprah's words because she's talking about, I heard that whisper, right? Listen to your whisper. It was on the podcast that she was doing at some point. I love Oprah, though. Um, but if we don't pay attention to some of these whispers like that, that we're seeing right now, really, it's not even whispers. People are yelling right now. People are yelling. We need help. We need to change this narrative now for forever, right? Um, but doing what we're doing, talking and being unapologetic and leaning into our discomfort is, is how we're going to make this happen. Yeah, getting, getting all stakeholders involved in the process, keep it ongoing, keep it sustainable, keep that commitment to the students and to have that courage to 
get into good trouble. So we are so thrilled for this to be releasing. Uh, Jerry and I are going to be each getting a book ourselves, but also we'll be um, giving one out as, um, as a prize for our followers as well. So um, we'll get that and I'm sure it will be a hot commodity. So tell us how did we get one? How do we, How do do we get a book? Yes. yes. You can now go right on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, Corwin okay. Publishing, which is our publisher, um, and purchase mm -hmm. the book uh, as well. But it's it's out there now. People are already pre-ordering. So we're asking folks, hey, go pre-order. Make it a bestseller, right? I mean, it's we're not doing it yes. to be bestsellers, honestly. We're doing this because the next generation is counting on us yep. to Absolutely. make a difference. And if we didn't have publishers, I would be giving you this manuscript for free. <laughs> so, yes. um, but but we got we do have to pay our publishers, and we signed a contract. But go out and learn, um, and and really look to us for um, for any consulting as well, because we this is our passion, uh, and what we want to be able to do is to to come to school systems and organizations, um, you know, near us and afar to to share and spread this knowledge. Um, so that they can become folks getting into good trouble at school. That's right. Very good. I just dropped, I just dropped into the chat uh, the link that. to the book on Amazon. Um, but I, I'm I'm no big fan of Amazon. But it's the it's the easiest way to get a hold of it right now. Yeah. Um, and you can pre-order, and it should be released even earlier than what the Amazon release date says. So uh, okay. by by early May, I think. Okay. Excellent. Good. Yeah, we will have that linked on um, all of our postings. Um, and where we'll, people can find the podcast. We also offer choice boards for everyone in our audience who does not know. We have all of our podcasts organized into different themes. Building relationships is one of them. Um, being social justice. Social yes. justice is another. So we will uh, be having these on both of those. And then all of the ways that you can access the podcast as well as a link to the book itself. And then for every three podcasts that you listen to, you get 0.5 CEU credit. So please take advantage of that. Um, and um, yeah, again, Greg and Doug, thank you so much uh, for joining us, spending time with us, teaching us um, and teaching our audience as well. And uh, we're all looking forward to that book you have. Yes, it is, it's truly a gift to not only educators, but to the children that they're working with. And I can't thank you enough for creating this to assist and help school districts because they do want to move forward. So thank you. Thank you. And I just want to thank ClassLink for having these um, courageous conversations because this is how you make a difference. Um, yes. And I love the fact that you all are trying to, to reach an even broader audience. And you said it at the beginning that this was because, just because, right? The goal is not to try to sell this. The goal is to spread the knowledge so that we can start having these courageous conversations and having folks who can give you just some guidance along the way. Um, so just thank you all for having the courage and the boldness to be able to do um, this very important work. We are happy thank you to do it. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And if you would like to stay linked up, be sure to follow us on Apple and Spotify and subscribe to us on YouTube.